Let's open God's Word this evening to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, where we will read the first 28 verses. And we do this in connection with Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Genesis chapter 24. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and sware to him concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. And it came to pass before he had done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. 
And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again under the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her held his peace to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass as the camels had done drinking that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee. Is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 37. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 22. It is the practice of our congregation to preach through the Heidelberg Catechism as a faithful summary of the main truths, the basic teachings of God's Word, and we're up to Lord's Day 37. May we then swear religiously by the name of God. Yes, either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects, or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's Word and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures. No, for a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism is an extension of the Catechism's treatment of the third commandment that we are not to take God's name in vain. For Lord's Day 37 treats the whole matter of swearing oaths and whether those oaths are permissible. And that's related to the third commandment because by definition, the swearing of an oath involves calling upon the name of our God. And what is more, one of the main ways that we can be guilty of sins against the third commandment, taking God's name in vain, is when we swear falsely. And so, this whole subject matter of 
swearing oaths falls under the third commandment. And the catechism separates this out as a separate Lord's Day. It could have included all of these questions and answers under Lord's Day 36, but the men who divided it deemed that it was appropriate, good, to have a separate Lord's Day on this subject. And now for us, we might question the wisdom of that. Because for us, this is not really a matter of debate the way that it was during the time of the Reformation, during the time when the Catechism was written. And what is more, as God's people, we swear very few oaths. So we might think, why do we need a separate Lord's Day on this subject matter? But over against that thinking, it's good for us to consider this matter. And it's good for us so that we remind ourselves why it is that we swear so very few oaths. And what is more, we need to be reminded of the seriousness of those few oaths that we do swear so that we're reminded of the importance of living according to them, of keeping and performing those oaths. But perhaps most importantly, this subject matter is worth treating because as we will be reminded, our God is the God of the oath. God Himself has sworn to save His people. And praise be to His name that He kept that oath so that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. So with all that in mind, let's consider Lord's Day 37 using as our theme the swearing and keeping of oaths. First, we'll seek to understand oaths. Second, we'll look at the swearing of oaths. And then finally, at the keeping of oaths. The swearing and keeping oaths. Understanding them, swearing them, and keeping them. We're going to understand the idea of an oath. We first must define what, we, what it is we are talking about. And an oath can be defined this way. It is calling upon the name of God to bear witness to the truth of something and asking God to punish me if I am lying. And we're pulling that definition really from the language of the catechism itself in Question answer 102, which asks about swearing oaths by saints or any other creatures. But in the answer, we have a definition of the lawful oath that reads, for a lawful oath is this. It's calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that He will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely. And so we see that an oath is something more than just a promise. Because an oath involves invoking the name of God Himself. Calling upon His name to really serve as our witness for Him to testify of the truthfulness of something. When we swear our oaths to God, we call upon His name because of who our God is. He's the omniscient one. The omnipresent God. He's the God about whom we read in Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. This is the God described for us in Psalm 139, verses 2-4. through Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. 
and art acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. There's no witness like God. Because God is the One who sees all things, who knows all things, and therefore He is able to testify to the truthfulness of something. And what is more, we call upon God because this is the God who cannot, who does not lie. Proverbs 23, verse 19, God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. So we call upon the name of our God when we swear an oath. And we're asking Him to bear witness to the truthfulness of something. And what is more, we're in essence saying, if I'm lying, then let God Himself punish me. Let God curse me if I swear falsely. That's the idea of an oath. And the purpose of an oath is to confirm the fidelity, the truthfulness of whatever it is that we are saying. That's the language that's used in answer 101. May we then swear religiously by the name of God, yes, either when the magistrates demand it of subjects or necessity requires us thereby. And now, note this language. Here's the purpose. To confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. What this is saying is that there are certain matters that are so weighty so significant, so important that it's legitimate for us to use an oath to underscore the faithfulness of a man's word. To confirm that a man is telling the truth. And that can take on different forms. For example, it may be to confirm the truth, the fidelity of what something, what somebody did or will do or did not do or will not do. For example, a man may swear an oath, I did not tamper with those documents. So it could relate to something a man's done or has not done, but it could also relate to something a man has said or did not say, will say, or will not say, so that a man might swear an oath, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's done for the purpose of confirming the fidelity and the truthfulness of something. But now the catechism is not so much interested in defining an oath. That's there. It's embedded into the language of Lord's Day 37. But the main question in Lord's Day 37 is whether these oaths are permissible whether they are legitimate. Question answer 101. May we then swear religiously by the name of God? Are oaths permissible? And the answer is yes. And the rest of the bottom half of the answer gives us the reason why. For such an oath is founded on God's Word and therefore was justly used by saints both in the Old and New Testament. Catechism is drawing from Scripture. It says these oaths are founded upon the Word of God. There's biblical evidence for them. For example, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, we read, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him and shalt swear by His name. It actually calls God's people to do this. And what is more, 
The Catechism says, therefore, it was justly used by saints both in the Old and New Testament. So there are these biblical examples that we can find. For example, Jacob required that Joseph swore an oath that he would bring his remains, his body, up out of the land of Egypt and have them buried in the promised land. Jonathan had David swear an oath to him that after Jonathan was dead, David would continue to show kindness to Jonathan's family. And it's not just in the Old Testament that we find this. We find this in the New Testament as well. Paul swore oaths in his epistles. Romans 1, verse 9, For God is my witness, he's calling upon the name of God, whom I serve with my spirit in the Gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He's asking that God witness to the truthfulness of what He's saying. We see something similar in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that, I, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. So we have various examples that show the whole idea of swearing an oath is founded upon the Word of God and was justly used by saints both in the Old and New Testament. And the reality is when this is done properly, it really serves to honor our God. And that's implied in the very wording of the catechism. Question answer 102 asks about whether we may swear by saints or any other creatures. And the answer is no. But what's noteworthy is the reason given for why we may not do that. And it's those last few words that give us that reason because when it says, which honor is due to no creature? We may not swear by some creature because that's giving honor to a creature that that creature is not worthy of. But now flip that around and what that's telling us is that when we do swear by the name of God, we are giving honor to Him. Because what we're doing is really confessing our religion. To swear a proper oath is for us to affirm the truth about God that He is the omnipresent, all-knowing God who is the God of all truth. And all this is to say that the swearing of oaths is not only permissible, but can be pleasing to our God. And that would include the specific oath that we read about in Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 24, we see Abraham, Abraham and his concern that his son Isaac find a godly wife. And in this connection, he requires his eldest servant to swear an oath that he find a wife not from the daughters of the Canaanites, the heathen nations around, but from Abraham's family that he left behind. That's verses 3 and 4. I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Notice this here confirms what we've said about an oath that involves 
calling upon the name of God, he was to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. That is the the omnipresent one who also has the power to punish if you go against your oath. And he swore this oath to confirm the fidelity and truthfulness of what he would do. What he would not do, take a wife from among the heathen, but instead take a wife for Isaac who is God-fearing. And what's interesting here in this oath is that action that accompanied it. We read of that at the end of verse 2. Abraham saying to his servant, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. And then we read of him doing that in verse 9. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. We're left wondering, what's the meaning of this? What's the significance of this? There are a number of wrong explanations given. It's not the case that Abraham is adopting the practices of the different cults around him. Nor is this simply some ancient tradition of the past that we no longer have any idea what its meaning and significance really is. But instead, when we look at this in light of the rest of Scripture, we must see that Abraham is requiring his servant to swear an oath with the promised Savior in full view. For he has him put his hand under his thigh or under his loin. And when we look in Scripture, we see that at times, Scripture uses a man's thighs, his loins, as a reference to the seat of his procreative powers. For example, we read in Genesis 46, verse 26, all the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins. It's talking about the descendants of a man. And so for Abraham to have his servant put his hand under his thigh, under his loin, is for Abraham to have him swear this oath with his descendant in view. And now not his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but the seed. Jesus Christ. This is a godly man requiring of his servant a godly oath with our Savior Jesus Christ fully in view. And again, this underscores the permissibility of swearing an oath. Now before we move on from this specific example, let's not fail to see what this has to say about the significance of finding a godly spouse. Young people, And young adults, did you know that it's so important that you find a godly spouse to marry that Abraham required of his servant that he swear an oath to that very effect? My servant, you may not, you must not find an ungodly wife for my son. Instead, take the 450-mile trip on Camelback back to where my family is from and find there a God-fearing wife for my son. But Abraham, 
what's wrong with the women here? Why can't he marry one of these women from the nations around us? It might be advantageous. Perhaps this could be beneficial from a financial point of view. Maybe this would help him gain a standing among these people. And after all, there are plenty of pretty women around. No, my servant. None of those other things matter. The one thing that matters when you are looking for a spouse, at least the chief and most important one, is that she is a fellow believer. And therefore, I'm going to require that you swear an oath that you will not take an unbelieving spouse for my son, but you will find a woman who is one in the faith with him. Young people, young adults, if you have any doubts about the importance of marrying in the Lord, let this passage remove all of those doubts. Now, all of that's really a side point. Because the main point that we're talking about here is trying to understand what the Bible itself teaches us about oaths. And if we're going to fully understand it, we have one more thing that we need to see in this connection, and that's that our God is the God of the oath. Did you know that He Himself has sworn various oaths? He has. He swore an oath to Abraham. And it's brought up in this very passage. Genesis chapter 24, verse 7. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. God Himself swore an oath to Abraham that he would give him a promised seed and that that seed would inherit the land in which he was a pilgrim and a stranger. And when God swears an oath, he swears by his own name. That's what Hebrews chapter 6 teaches us because there's no one greater, no one higher than God himself, so he swears by his own name. And this is not the only instance of God doing this. Earlier in the worship service, we sang a versification of Psalm 132 about God's oath to David. Psalm 132 verse 11 says this, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. God swore an oath to David that one of David's descendants would be the promised Messiah who would sit upon that everlasting throne. And there are other oaths that God swears in Scripture. Oaths that He would even punish. Amos 4, verse 2, God swears an oath by His own holiness that He would indeed take the people of Israel into captivity. So all of this is a part of the foundation for the catechism to say that oaths are founded on the Word of God. Because God Himself swears an oath and the heart and center of God's oath to His people is that He will save us in and through Jesus Christ. It's really what He's swearing in Psalm 132. To send Jesus Christ as the promised King to establish that heavenly kingdom, to make us citizens of that kingdom. 
It's the same oath that's in view in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we have a glimpse into an intra-Trinitarian conversation. Because Psalm 110 verse 1 begins, The Lord, in all capital letters, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, that is, the Lord Jehovah is speaking unto David's Lord, the Son of God, so that you have the Father speaking to the Son, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And verse 4 makes clear that this was an oath. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So within the triune God, there is the swearing of an oath. And the heart and center of that is that Jesus Christ would come into this world to save us from our sins, to be our King and Priest. It's important to understand God's purpose in doing this. It's not for His own sake. It's not as though God has to hold Himself accountable by swearing an oath, but He does this for us. Go back to that language from the Catechism. He does this to confirm the fidelity and the truthfulness of what He's told us. And He does that for us because He knows our faith is so weak. He knows that we are so prone to doubting His Word so that He does not leave it as a mere promise, but He swears by His own name to accomplish our salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And really what God is saying is, if I fail, if I do not do good on this, let my own name be cursed. That is, I would cease to be God. So do you see how sure His promises are? Child of God, they are as sure as the very existence of God Himself. He would cease to be God if He did not perform, if He did not keep His oaths that He has sworn to us His people. And now it's when we understand that truth that out of gratitude for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, we will now seek to exercise great care in the swearing and keeping of oaths ourselves. And that's what we want to look at next. The swearing of oaths. And in this connection, there are three things that we need to learn regarding the swearing of oaths that may come out of our mouth. And the first is that we must avoid all sinful oaths. And that includes all false swearing. That is, perjury. Perjury is the sin of lying under oath. And Scripture forbids this as a form of taking God's name in vain. Leviticus 19, verse 12. And ye shall not swear by My name falsely. And now notice the parallel statement neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. If we swear falsely, we are taking God's name in vain. And we must not imagine that the child of God is somehow immune to this sin. 
Peter was guilty of his sin. When he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember that he swore. And what he was doing is saying, I do not know that man Jesus, and I take God as my witness that I do not know that man, and I'm asking God to punish me if I am swearing falsely. And that's quite something. And you can see how great a sin that is. Because when we swear falsely, we are trying to have God Himself approve of, attest to our falsehood. We're asking the God of truth to confirm a lie. And that sin most certainly does make us worthy of being cursed. But it's not the only sin in view here. Because in avoiding sinful oaths, we must also avoid all rash swearing. And this was another violation of the third commandment brought up in the previous Lord's Day. What is required in the third commandment that we not only by cursing or perjury, but also by rash swearing. The idea of rash swearing is swearing an oath for something trivial, something insignificant. It's using an oath to confirm things that really ought not need confirming. It would be like a student swearing an oath to his or her teacher. I swear I did my homework. And I just forgot it at home. That's a trivial use of the oath. It's a mockery of the oath. And it's making God's name cheap and common. We may not swear rashly. Nor may we swear by someone or something other than God. And that's what the catechism is teaching us in question and answer 102. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that He will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely which honor is due to no creature. Here the catechism is drawing from Scripture. Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, Him shalt thou serve, and to Him shalt thou cleave and swear by His name. And the idea is, not by the name of some other God, but you may only swear by His name. And the catechism makes a point of this because it's addressing the error of the Roman Catholic Church to swear by the names of different saints. And the catechism is saying is that is unbiblical. We may not do that because it's giving honor to a creature that should only go to God. So with, regarding, with regards to the swearing of oaths, we learn first of all that we must avoid all sinful oaths. Second, regarding the swearing oaths, we must see that our use of it them should be very limited. And we say that in light of the instruction of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 and following. There, as a part of His instruction on the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior taught us this, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform 
unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now in understanding this passage, we do have to qualify this passage to make sure we don't fall into various misconceptions because there are some who have a misunderstanding of this passage that say that Jesus Christ is forbidding the swearing of any and every oath. That was the view of the Anabaptists during the time of the Reformation and that's the view of various groups still today. And they would point to this language right here in Matthew 5 and say, see, Jesus Himself says it. Verse 34, swear not at all. Therefore, you may not swear any oath under any circumstance. But that's not the point. Because that interpretation fails to take into account the context and the fact that Jesus Christ is addressing the errors of the Pharisees who had twisted, who had distorted this whole idea of an oath and were swearing by other things. And that's what verses 35 and following make clear. We're not to really verse 34, swear not by heaven, nor by God's throne, nor by the earth, neither by Jerusalem, neither by thy own head. And we have to understand that when Jesus says swear not at all, He's saying don't swear by any of these other things. And then He gives a list of the things not to swear by. And that has to be the way we understand this. Not as a blanket statement of forbidding the swearing of oath in general, but of swearing the oath in these particular ways. Because otherwise, Jesus would be contradicting the Father. We've already made clear from Scripture that the oath is founded on the Word of God. And saints, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, justly use the oath. And we've shown that God Himself has sworn an oath. And therefore, if Jesus were to teach, you may not swear any oath under any circumstance, He'd be setting Himself up as an enemy of God. That's not the correct interpretation. But now with that qualification in place, we do have to do justice to the point He's making. Because the main point is not the permissibility of the oath, but the main point is that oaths should be limited. And that's the point being made at the end of verse 37. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, Nay, this instruction is very simple. What Jesus Christ is saying, what He's teaching us is that when you say yes, let that truly mean yes. And when you say no, let that truly mean no. Or to be honest, at all times, 
We are to live before the face of our God in such a way that the oath becomes entirely unnecessary. It should be that our simple yes has the force of an oath. And that applies not only to when we ourselves say it, but when we have others of God's people say it to us and we hear it. That is, we're to believe that yes means yes and no means no. And now in saying this, I'm not saying that we should allow ourselves to become gullible. I'm not saying that there's no room for caution in dealing with certain people, but I'm saying within the kingdom of heaven, among the citizens of Christ's kingdom, in the church, in our families, if someone says yes to us, we need to understand that means yes. There ought not be this skepticism, this suspicion among God's people when we communicate with each other. But both when saying yes or no and when hearing yes and no. Or understand, that's what it means. And when that's the case, the oath becomes unnecessary. And that's the way it should be. Our use of it should be very, very limited. So when are we to swear an oath? Well, that brings us to the third thing. We must avoid all sinful oaths. Second, our use of the oath must be very limited. And third, we are to reserve oaths for when they are demanded of us or for especially significant occasions in the Christian life. On the one hand, they're permissible when they are required, when they're demanded of us. And that's what the Catechism teaches us at the outset of question answer 101. May we then swear religiously by the name of God? Yes. Either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects. This is perhaps the oath that we're most familiar with. The idea of testifying in a court of law and the swearing of an oath that you will testify, you will speak the truth. But it's not just the civil magistrate, civil authorities who may do this, but church authorities. And this can happen sometimes in the church. For example, if someone in the church brings an accusation of sin against someone else in the church and that person being accused denies it. I didn't do that. I'm not guilty of what that person is saying. But then the accuser refuses to back down. Oh yes, he did. And both are insisting. Yes, he did. No, I didn't. In that case, the consistory may require that each of them swear an oath. You call, I want each of you to call upon the name of God and ask Him to curse you if you are lying. If it's ever required of us, it's a permissible use of the oath. But now the key is, that happens when someone in a position of authority requires that of us. And that's an important element that we need to see. It's not the case that we may do this among each other. 
It's not the case that a fellow brother goes to a fellow brother and say, I need you to swear an oath. No, that's something that's reserved for those in positions of authority. They may may demand it of us. That, on the one hand, is when we may, we must swear an oath. There are also those especially significant occasions in the Christian life in which whether you understand it as swearing an oath, vowing a vow, or making a solemn promise among the assembly of God's people, we speak a word that has the weight of an oath. There are four such occasions. We do this at confession of faith. Like we had last week, at our confession of faith, we are promising that we will hold to the truths of the Reformed faith. That we will will reject all errors. That we will lead a new and godly life. That we will submit ourselves to the government of the church. Second, we do this at marriage. We promise to love our spouse, to be faithful to our spouse, even unto death. Third, we do this as parents at baptism like we heard this morning. We promise to instruct our children in the truths of the aforesaid doctrines, the truths that we were asked about in question one. And to do this to the utmost of our power. And fourth, we do this as office bearers. When we are installed into office, we promise to be faithful in the discharge of our respective offices. Now again, there's a question. How exactly are we to view these? And there's the question of whether or not it's an oath or a vow. The difference between an oath is something you swear in the presence of God to someone else. A vow is made directly to God Himself. But even if you set that question aside, there's also the question, is it really rise to the level of an oath, a vow, or is it just a solemn promise? Because, well, what do we say? when we respond to those questions? A simple yes. That means yes among the citizens of Christ's kingdom. In the end, however we view it, It does not matter because whether it's swearing an oath, vowing a vow, or a solemn promise among, in an official worship service among the assembly of God's people, it's to have the force of an oath. But now out of thankfulness to God for salvation in Jesus Christ, must see that Keeping the third commandment means more than swearing only lawful oaths. It includes the keeping and the performing of those oaths. That is indeed our calling. That's the calling that comes out in Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all all that proceedeth out of his mouth. We must be true to our word. 
We must keep our promises. We must perform the oaths that we swear. And we must do so recognizing the seriousness of them. That we're asking God to punish us if we do not perform all of the words that proceed out of our mouths. So how are we doing, congregation? Believers, that is those of us who have made confession of faith, are we leading a new and godly life that's in harmony with that confession? Having received Christ, are we now walking in Him accordingly? Husbands and wives, are we keeping our marital vows? And husbands, let's not kid ourselves. That means much, much more than simply avoiding the sin of adultery. We promise to love, to nourish, to cherish our wives. And wives, are you giving loving submission to your husband? Are you seeking to be a suitable helper so that you take your gifts, your abilities, your time, your energy, and press it into the service of the home? How are we doing as parents? Are we instructing our children in the truths of God's Word to the utmost of our power? Are we performing the functions of a priest on their behalf? And what about the office bearers of the church? We've gone over our respective callings in our council meetings. We have the handouts that delineate our various duties. Are we being faithful in the discharge of those offices? In response to these questions, the child of God humbly responds, no. No, I have not kept my word. I have sinned. And therefore, I deserve that God Himself curse me and punish me. Child of God, make that confession. But do not stop at that confession. Instead, go to the cross in true repentance, in true sorrow for our sin. Let us confess our sins of not being true to our Word and seek forgiveness in the blood 
of Jesus Christ. Because the good news of the Gospel is that there is forgiveness. Exactly because God Himself kept His oath. In the first point, we saw He swore an oath. And now let's come back to that oath in the third point and see that He kept it. The triune God of heaven and earth promised, He swore an oath that He would accomplish our salvation in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He kept that oath. For He sent His only begotten Son, that is, His natural, His eternal Son, the object of His love, down into this world. And He delivered Him up to die on the cross of Calvary. That is, He actually did what Abraham, by God's grace, was willing to do, but was not required to do. The slain of His own Son. God kept His oath so that there is salvation for us. But we can look at this not only from the perspective of the triune God of heaven and earth, we can look at this, of, look at this from the perspective of the Son. Our Savior Jesus Christ because He is the second person of the Trinity. And therefore, this oath that God Himself has sworn is the oath of Jesus Christ. For Him, it was an oath to come down into this world in order to redeem us. And Jesus Christ kept that oath. And understand, congregation, that meant so much more than riding 450 miles on camelback to pay a dowry in order to bring a wife back. For He did not simply leave the tents of Abraham. He left the glory of heaven above. And the path that He had to walk along was not just through a dry and a thirsty land in a desert. But it was the path leading to the cross. A path of shame and suffering. A path of humiliation and reproach. And at the end of the path was not a well of water. And what was required of Him was not simply giving over some some gold and silver. But at the end of the path was the cross. Where in order to purchase us to Himself, He paid the ransom of His own precious blood. He laid down His life so that He might purchase to Himself His bride. Jesus Christ kept His oath. And that means for us there's forgiveness. Because I have not kept my word. 
I deserve that God Himself curse me, that God punish me. Well, praise be to God, Jesus Christ took that curse. He took that punishment upon Himself so that there is forgiveness. And what is more, by keeping His oath, that was a part of His perfect obedience to the whole of God's law, which obedience is now imputed to us by faith so that we can be declared righteous before our God. There's salvation in Jesus Christ. And what is more, there is strength in and through His Spirit which He gives to us to now live a life of thankful obedience which includes always letting our yes mean yes and our no mean no. And being faithful to whatever vows, whatever solemn promises we have made. May God grant us that grace. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the forgiveness of sins. We thank Thee for salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray that Thou wilt so fill our hearts with gratitude that we now seek to serve Thee and to be faithful unto Thee in every station and calling of life. Hear now this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.